0: Let's turn to the word of God. Matthew 19, verse 13. Then children were brought to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who's good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at him and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones. Judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Thus far reading God's holy, inerrant, and eternal Word. All flesh is as grass, its beauty is the flower of the field. The grass withers and this flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. This is the word that was just read to you. By God's help, it'll be preached. Please be seated. Words are very important things. We need to be so precise, especially when we're having serious conversation to measure our words. Choose them wisely. Look at what this man chooses to say and ask Jesus. He asks, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? You know, the the context of this, as I mentioned, would be very important. Just before, we see that the children are being brought to Jesus and being blessed. And Jesus said these. These have a right. They, they have a part in my kingdom. That the kingdom belongs to such as these. Perhaps perhaps this rich young ruler had heard Jesus' response and, and became enthused to approach him with his question, because he surely wanted to partake of the kingdom. But what words did he use? And what was his posture? You know, in the book of Acts, we read the question put to the the disciples, the apostles, there in the Philippian jail. After the Lord shook the place up with an earthquake and the the bars of the jail were uh, were busted open, the Philippian jailer was very much afraid because he realized that this earthquake was a sign of God's displeasure against the treatment of that city uh, of Paul and his and his companion. And so he asked the question, what must I do to be saved? That's a different question than what must I do. And therein, my friends, lies all the difference between eternal life and the perishing. The teaching here this morning is this, young Wealthy and ardently religious persons may seem to have a great favor from God in this life. They, They have their whole lives ahead of them. They can enjoy it to the full because they have the means. And they are zealous and meticulous in their expression of faith. That is to say in their religion. And they seem to have everything going for them from God. But only poor, avowed sinners who repent and follow Jesus will enter the eternal life. Only those who receive it as a gift, even as children who know they have nothing and will never be able to say, oh, because of this that I have done, because of that, and because of all my works, only poor, avowed sinners who repent and follow Jesus will enter eternal life. Now, I'll well, just preach this text in three points. I, I really, a whole book can be written on this because it, there's, there's a lot of technicalities here, but I, I can't do that, especially on a communion Sunday. So I'm about to go a little bit fast, catch up with me later. And we can have some good dialogue. I I say this passage is extremely rich. The first point, though, that I want you to consider is only a good man will obtain eternal life. Only only a good man will obtain eternal life because God is perfectly good. And God is light. and, And God has no communion, no friendship with darkness. The light will expel the darkness. And God will expel all sin from his kingdom his divine and heavenly kingdom. God cannot deny himself. His holy essence requires a a companion or a friendship with someone who is righteous. God cannot and will not compromise his own being. He will not compromise his justice, and he will not exert his mercy just so that he can put up with sin and the likes of Lucifer and his angels in his heavens. And the rich young ruler knew this, because God is perfectly good, and yet he calls Jesus good. All right? Only a good man will obtain eternal life. A good man, however, does only good deeds. That is to say, good deeds don't make a man good, but if a man is good, the fruit will follow of his goodness. So a good man does only good deeds. The least sin bars a person from entering life as a qualification of a covenant of works. On the basis of his works, the least sin uh, will bar a man from paradise. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. One transgression, and Adam and Eve surely died on that day, and they were expelled from paradise. No communion with God there. Good deeds are defined then by as good deeds uh, by God in his Bible, he tells us in his commandments that, that which is pleasing, the good order of a man's soul, his heart, the deeds expressed in piety to God in the first four commandments, and uh, the deeds of justice and mercy that are, are done to his fellow neighbor uh, in the commandments five through ten. Good deeds are defined by God as good, especially in all of Scripture, but especially in the moral law, which are the Ten Commandments. And it doesn't take one to be a Jew to know the moral law. However, dimly all men uh, have in their in their own makeup as to what is good and what is evil. Yet there is a vestige. There's a there's a remaining part of the teaching of God's commandments. Which were imprinted on the on the on man's heart at the creation, because he was made upright, and the man was made in he was given knowledge, and he was righteous with God, and he had fellowship and was had friendships with God. He had the moral law in his heart, and he was bound to keep it. He was bound to keep it in good conscience. So all men, even after the fall, have a notion of these. Commandments because they pertain to all men universally. They're perpetual They're moral. We call them moral because they dictate our mores our actions uh, What we do that's the Greek Latin the Latin uh, The Latin root of moral or more All men know that by creation everyone all men know it in their conscience says Paul in Romans 2 at times, our conscience will say, no, I, I didn't do that wrong. That was, I did not. I was not even in Houston, so I didn't, I didn't rob that bank. Your conscience is clear in that. I did not rob that bank. That was somebody else. You know when you're telling the truth. You also know when you've compromised the truth, and your conscience will, will smite you for that. And that's because the moral laws in in everyone's heart. Not, I'm not saying about the Jew. I'm not saying about the Christian. I'm saying everyone has a stamping of some sort And they may be, however dim, however however, uh, blurred the letters have become, there's still a force there. The moral law then indicates or proves a man to be righteous. But the, the, the moral law cannot and never was intended to make anyone righteous by following it. No, man was made upright with knowledge But he cannot make himself righteous, otherwise we wouldn't need a savior, would we? No. It is not the law that makes a man righteous. It just declares a man, if he is consistently good, to be good. The rich young man knew this. He had devoted himself to keeping God's commandments from his youth. Jesus didn't reprove him of that. He knew that that man was was, uh, being forthright with him. This rich young ruler judged himself to have kept God's law outwardly. That is to say, that he was, as far as the outward form of the law, blameless, and therefore he made a claim to be righteous. And so he had, it seemed he had a passport into the kingdom because that's what God requires righteousness. Indeed, he judged Jesus himself on that same basis to be good by this standard. And he was right. A lot of people wouldn't understand that Jesus was perfectly righteous and good. I, I, I don't know. Maybe there was just a swipe at some, some polite conversation because Jesus uh, corrected him here. He said, only God is good. The man knew that Jesus was a good Jew outwardly, but he didn't really understand that Jesus was the divine Son of God veiled in human flesh who... <laughs> was was the font of all goodness. Yeah, only God is good. So Jesus corrects him, he refines his thinking a little bit, opens up his thinking. But the rich young man really didn't know this. He was saying good outwardly, a good Jew, pious, blameless, and I, yeah. But Jesus wanted him and began this conversation because this man did not understand what good truly men in the moral law. Only a good man will obtain eternal life. External conformity to God's law has never been enough. And if there's any question in your mind about how the Ten Commandments and how the law in the Old Testament was to be interpreted and understood, this passage should, should give you good light because Jesus is the teacher of Israel. And he is explaining the law to Jews. And in that light, we should review the Sermon on the Mount, because what Jesus is saying is outside from the, from the outward conformity of the, the letter of the law, there is an inward spiritual and subjective, but also very real movement of the moral law interacting with the conscience of man and the heart will dictate the direction of the life, whether for good or for ill. That's the Sermon on the Mount. It was, and people think, well, that's just an excoriating application of the law. No, that is an explanation of what the law really means. And that's when Jesus, when he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount in this very book of Matthew, uh, was addressing the nation of Israel, preparing them for the holiness required of God in his kingdom reminding them of the same. So it's good for you to review the Sermon on the Mount every once in a while, and even the Ten Commandments understood uh, in the context of the moral law and the Ten Commandments. The important thing here, and the, the direction that Jesus is is going in the conversation with this rich young ruler, is uh, to have him see and experience that he really has not considered what goodness is as the way God requires it, and that to know that he himself is not good. Now, My friends, we can accept among, one, uh, among um, ourselves an amicable, blameless conduct in an elder and say he's a good man. The scripture ascribes that to people. Uh, but you have to watch context in every way. And do we mean that a man is justified eternally and perfectly acceptable to God in every detail, in every aspects of thoughts, motives, deeds, what he's done and what he has perhaps failed to do? This young ruler will be taught by Jesus to understand that there's something yet lacking. And do you know that if it were for your own person, do you know that you are not Good as the law requires you to be good. One good deed, we might say, may give sufficient evidence whether a man is good in this sense, um, but it does not justify him. And We need to explore this area, but there's no time this morning to do this. One good deed will not justify anyone as righteous before God. By the way, your faith, you might say, well, I believed, and so I did something good, I believed. Now, faith is not a work. Faith is is the opposite of a work in Scripture. As far as justification is concerned, the two have to be absolutely separate. Faith declares, I have nothing to give, I must receive. It's an instrument that reaches out to receive from Christ his righteousness, his eternal life, his spirit. Faith is not a work. And we're not trusting in faith to save us, we're, we're trusting in the Lord Jesus. Faith in faith is fideism. It's a false religion. It's existentialism, actually. But we don't have to get into that, this philosophy. One good deed will not justify anyone as righteous before God, but one good deed might serve to demonstrate that a person is already justified. And here's the tricky part. It, it, it might affirm that a person is righteous with very fine evidence, and that evidence is admissible. And so this is, I think, in the background of this rich young ruler's head, because he knows, for instance, that Abraham believed God and prepared God, uh, and, and obeyed God, and, and prepared Isaac for a sacrifice, and he was, in a sense, as the, the latter epistles uh, teach us, in a sense, God, uh, Abraham, was justified or confirmed to be righteous by his works. All right? There's that sense, and it may be in the back of this man's head. Also Phineas, who's a priest, stopped God's judgment of the plague by one good deed. He took a spear and he, he thrust it through a, a fornicating Hebrew uh, that was uh, uh, there having illicit relations with, with the Canaanite. And so the scripture says that he was justified or he was authenticated to be a just man by God. That could be also in the back of the rich young ruler's mind because that deed affirmed what he already was. He was acceptable to God. And so the ritual ruler knew of this teaching. He knew the word of God. He had been, he'd been very well instructed. But yet he lacked something, and he knew that he lacked something, and he certainly lacked assurance that he would be, uh, obtain eternal life. He sought it, so he asked Jesus how he might obtain it. But remember his phrasing of this question. And you see it right there. He asked, what good deed must I do? And uh, faith is not a work. Faith is not a deed. Faith receives the deeds of Jesus. And so the whole approach was wrong-headed to begin with. But The question we need to ask ourselves is, can you point to good enough evidence, not, not infallible evidence, but is there evidence in your life that Christ is in you? that you are at peace with God and that you are bearing the fruit of his Holy Spirit in dwelling. There must be some evidences. Now, the evidences will not justify you, uh, but they are a help and an encouragement to those who are seeking the Lord and uh, and do inform your assurance. But uh, there are no fruits here that a Pharisee cannot mimic, so you have to be very careful about resting in your fruits or resting in your deeds. So as you, as you look at this this afternoon, you might, you might ask yourself the question, review the commandments. And I hope that an honest inquiry, an honest inventory of your thoughts and your words, what you've done, what you have failed to do, will reveal that on the basis of works, you too can align with the rich and ruler. You are bereft of the kingdom of God. But we need not despair, because that's not the end of this conversation. And point number two in the sermon is that your response to one commandment is sufficient to confirm or disqualify you from eternal life. You see, because Jesus gives this young ruler who claims that he had kept all of God's commandments, he gives him one commandment in two parts, just to see how he will handle this one. This is a trial to see if he understands. This is a trial... Not not to not to see whether the man truly has kept the whole law. Jesus knows that because he's the master theologian. He is the Lord, and besides, he knows his heart of this man. He can read this man's conscience. That's not an issue. The issue, uh, the Lord is gives him this commandment so that the man may see in another in another way the, his deficiency in failing all commandments. Okay. Now, I, I again. The passage is a little bit, is, is difficult. There's some, there's some things here that we need to think through. Uh, but I think the best thinking that we can, uh, we can receive here is that this, this commandment that Jesus has for the, the young ruler uh, is, is, is applied uniquely to him because of his unique circumstances. He had great possessions, and he had not considered the cost of following Jesus because Jesus was not only good, but Jesus was the divine son of God and God in the flesh. And so the the response in this commandment sculpted by Christ is meant to help him in every way discern his person and his relationship to goodness. The commandment then, in this case, to the rich and ruler is to be taken quite literally because he has to take stock in what must be done according to the phrasing of his own question. What, must I, what good deed must I do? Now the commandment is to be taken literally because the covenant, the covenant that God has in place with Israel at this time is, a, is a, a covenant of grace under a legal administration. That is to say the grace of the Old Testament, after Abraham, but now being uh, the, the national covenant inaugurated at Horeb, Mount Sinai, where the Ten Commandments were delivered by the voice of God, by the finger of God in the stones. That was a gracious covenant because God was being good to the Jews at Horeb by giving him a law that describes a perfect righteousness to let them know that they are not righteous. Look at the context approaching Horeb. The The whole nation of Israel had become idolatrous and had become grumblers and mumblers and seeking to go back to Egypt. Unfaithful in every way. What they lacked, my friends, to be able to go with Moses and the elders as friends into Mount Sinai was faith. Now, if you want to know more about that, we're preaching that in the evening series in the book of Exodus. But suffice it to say here that the commandments were there as an act of God's goodness to convince us that we need His goodness. But the Jew took occasion in the flesh and had the audacious, the audacious boldness to attempt to justify themselves by works. That is a confusion, a mass confusion, and a derailment of true religion. We do this to this day. You don't have to be a Jew to derail. The commandment here, though, Jesus gives him very literally, sell all and follow me. He does not say, believe in my name and my resurrection, and you'll be saved. Because the man doesn't think he needs saving. He thinks he is good. And maybe there's a few people here this morning who think they're good. And so we need to we need to spend some time here and, and know what good means and what Jesus is saying. The commandment is a literal one. It's, it's a particular application to this man in particular circumstances. And the meaning of the commandment and the question, will Jesus be the, the young ruler's Lord? Will he keep the first commandment of the moral law of the moral law, thou shall I have no other gods before me, and here's God in the flesh, and the man doesn't see it. The man is bereft, totally blind to what the first commandment of the moral law means. then also Jesus will be will Jesus be all his comfort, will Jesus be all his contentment, all of his riches, all of his righteousness, all of his wisdom all of his sanctification, all of his redemption. Will Jesus be his all in all? And will this man follow him? That is to say, will he understood and keep the 10th commandment to be content in all things that God provides, not coveting what other people have, but full contentment and pleasure in God's goodness? That's what keeping the 10th commandment means. In the least motion... The least motions of agitation in our hearts, grumbling against God or our circumstances, or striving with our fellow men, or or, wa- or wishing that they were in a better spot as such and such a person who has a, a nice winter home in, uh, in Nassau, okay? All that all those movements are covetousness. And the man had great positions. he He took a lot of comfort. There's a lot of security, so he thought in being wealthy, I and mean, this man's about to lose everything when the temple goes down and all of Israel is, is trampled under the boots of the, of the Romans. But with those two commandments, these are sufficient to show that the man has not really understood the moral law. This one commandment is sufficient to confirm anyone to be good, or they can give evidence that they're bad. It gives evidence of, of being contented, not being covetous, keeping the Tenth Commandments. It gives evidence of faith of discerning God, of leaving those things that that the world considers security and pleasure. Okay? And in a discerning of God in Christ as his supreme good, which is the first commandment. This commandment then, if you think, well, that's impossible. Pastor, you're, you're putting up an impossible standard. Well, my friends, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And the 12 disciples had done the same. Uh, outwardly, Judas had done this. Outwardly, he had followed Christ, but he was stealing from the person. He, he would soon betray Christ. This commandment then though, was obeyed by all the disciples, at least on an outward basis to that date, from the heart, except, except again, Judas, which we'll speak about later, not in this sermon. This one commandment, this one This one set of instruction here by Jesus was enough to undo the rich young ruler. He had his whole life ahead of him. His his greatest riches, my friend, was that he would probably live many years. You can't buy life. There's no medicine. there's There's nothing you can do to extend your life. And when you're young, you have your whole life ahead of you. In that sense, every young man is rich. You've got to enjoy his, you enjoy his, his youth. He's got treasure. Don't throw it away, young people. Enjoy that what God has given you, you may enjoy. But remember, the last day you'll be called to account forever. God will hold you accountable, what if you do, but enjoy your life, all the days that God has given you. This is riches. And, 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 but in addition to that, he had great possessions—not not just a, a few possessions. He had great possessions, and then he would have to part with these, give these things away to the poor, which of course is charity, and charity is a, a, is a wonderful gift and evidence of the fruit of the spirit. And this man went away sad. He he, he was mournful of what he heard from Jesus' teaching. He did not rejoice. He was not more hopeful. And he was indeed rejected as to entering eternal life because he entered not through the narrow gate, which is Christ. He tried to enter in by some other means. And yet, and yet, he's better off. He's better off by this discussion with Jesus. I know it's hard for many people to, to understand that you can be better off being sorrowful than being giddy happy. But it is true. Because if you are sorrowful as this man is, because he is now, in Jesus' eye, a great teacher, confirmed to be a sinner. And you know what? That's a leg up on what he had before he met Jesus in this discussion. Now he understands in a way that he hadn't understand. He had not understood before. That the gracious covenant uh, uh, given by God at Sinai, the law, was to imprint on us a strong argument of the impossibility of going up that mountain to meet with him, that fiery, shaking, quaking mountain with the lightning and the clouds, the dark clouds. That was to let people know that these commandments must be kept. And it's not on the basis. But if God receives you, even as a child, sure. If he calls you up, you may come up. Sure. Do you have a spiritual understanding of the law? Not, not to recite it, my friends. We have children that can recite the Ten Commandments. We have a lot of adults that can't, by the way. I don't know about this church. I haven't done an, an audit, an inventory, but I know. In talking to people in general, the Ten Commandments are not something that they are, are eager to bring up. And now I think you may begin to respect why. Because they will always indicate some failure in us. But as Christians, we're not under the law as a basis of our justification. We're under the law as a basis that we might know God's holiness, that it might drive us to Christ even further, appreciate His righteousness that He worked out, He fulfilled this law, and As guardrails in our life to, to see, well, as long as I'm in the holy path, I know that the Lord is pleased when I'm doing this, even though I don't do it perfectly. But my heart is perfect in wanting to do it. That's a Christian. A Christian desires and so looks at the moral law with loving eyes, saying, oh, I know this is my inheritance. One day I will be able to walk like this. Yes, one day you will. One day you will, by God's goodness, when you are glorified. Do you have an understand, a spiritual understanding of life? So you will reject any thought of, person, of personal righteousness, even of having a righteousness that you can declare by the help of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, because the, the people of old had the Holy The prophets of old had the Holy Spirit. They had faith. They, some of them had great faith. But all of them had to confess sin, and all of their sins had to be atoned nationally. So, there's none righteous, none one, not one. And if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, by cleansing, by continual cleansing, as a jar that would contaminate its water if it were not flushed continually, but by His cleansing, we are made righteous. You need to have this understanding of the law lest you come before God in any boasting. You must reject any thought of personal righteousness before God. The last point of the sermon is that God is able to save poor, repentant sinners and bring them to eternal life. Sinners who uh, love great possessions. God can save those. Sure, it's hard. But with God, all things are possible, and he can make a, a, a very, very wealthy man, repent from his love and greed. Sure, he grants him repentance. He grants him love in his heart to God. He can justify a man through faith in the Lord Jesus. Sinners who would take more comfort in carnal security than in walking by faith. Sure, he can take a man who has great confidence because he has several million in his bank account or in his retirement. He's fine. We're going to be fine. Rather, you should say we'll be fine if the Lord wills. that we'll be fine because all is up to God. The sinners who take more comfort in carnal security than in God, he can grant them repentance. He can send them his spirit and turn their hearts. And those disciples had pretty good... Re- pretty. Pretty, pretty good possessions. Matthew, the tax collector, probably had a good, uh, a good equity. The fishermen, they had their boats and their nets and their, their life, their life was worked there. They left all. They followed the Lord Jesus at his command. It's a difficulty. It's really an impossible task. And this is what we need to understand. It's an impossible task for a camel literally to go through an eye of a needle. And it's impossible for a rich man of himself Literally, to go into the kingdom of heaven, it is impossible. The disciples were astonished to hear Jesus teaching. They're acting like Armenians here. I guess you know. They were thinking, if a man is religious and if he's wealthy and, and obviously, has, obviously has the blessing of God in his life, or how else, how else would he accrue such such wealth? God has been his friend? No. No, not necessarily. But that's what they were thinking. If a, if a zealous, religious young man who's wealthy, shown all the favors of God, if he cannot enter, who can enter? But my friends, God is able to save poor, repentant sinners and bring them into the eternal life. All things are possible with God by his powerful, redeeming grace. The man is made a new creature and give, being given a new heart by grace. He's a, new, he's a brand new creation. And a brand new creation is not tied to the old creation. He can do things that the previous man could not do. And that's what we are. We are born again, Christians. We don't creep into the kingdom of heaven by degrees. We are imported, lock, sock, and barrel. We are changed and we are renewed in, this, in the whole man after the image of God. All things are possible with God. All who follow Jesus sincerely, believing Him, will be confirmed to enter eternal life. They, they, they're trusting Him as, as, as their leader. They love Him supremely. Jesus' disciples had already done this. By God's grace, of course. Now, again... The Gospels don't, ex- don't explain all that the epistles will later. I mean, Paul will take time in the book of Romans to explain just the mechanics of this theology. here, And Ephesians will also, some of the deep mysteries going on here, but as for the Gospels, this is their outworking. The disciples had been done exactly what Jesus commanded the virtuous ruler, by God's grace. And so he reminds him in this passage that in the coming age, they will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, these poor disciples will rule in a way that they, it's just unfathomable to think what their future inheritance will be like. And he also reminds them that those who follow in this life will not lose anything, they will receive 100 fold compensation in the present life, along with persecutions, along with sufferings, along with any number of discomforts but having always the very comfort of friendship with God and his promises, which are always true. My friends, you will not lose out by following Jesus Christ. Not in this life, especially not in the next. Um, we're reminded, of course, of that, that quote from missionary James Elliot, missionary to Peru. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, Uh, To keep what he cannot lose. And that's the mindset of a man who has every confidence that God will save him. He will give up all. He will take up the cross. He will follow the Lord Jesus. And he will begin, he will begin by degrees to understand the commandments of God, to honor them, and to strive with all his heart, though he weeps, though he mourns that he does not keep his commandments yet he longs to and attempts to in his obedience. That, my friend, is the true Christian. Let me conclude this sermon. Young, wealthy, and ardently religious persons and may seem to have everything going for them with regard to God's favor in this life, but only poor sinners who will repent and follow Jesus will enter into eternal life. And God's judgment will reveal those many that appear to be first will indeed be last. And those who appear to be, sadly, miserably last in this life, they will be first by God's good and right judgment. My friends, I'll just, I'll just say this. Those who have eyes to see the goodness, the majesty, the, the sweetness, the purity, the divinity of Christ, will follow Jesus. And, and no one needs to push him in that direction without hesitation. Are your eyes open? Do you see the goodness of the Savior? Or are you, as a Christian even, still squinting? Yeah, we're trying to figure out why are are people so adamant. Why is religion called the opiate of the people? I agree, Opium is strong, but it's not even strong enough to to describe the inexpressible joy and comfort that a Christian receives at knowing he is at peace with God and that his soul is safe and kept by the Savior. Are you still trying to be saved? And as your question to the Lord is, what must I do that I can be acceptable to you? And now you have your answer. You, you've been doing, the, the, it's just wrong-headed. The approach is all wrong. You have not understood the moral law. You've got to be able to say, I throw all attempt of that away, that I might gain Christ and, and find his righteousness alone and then by his spirit begin to walk in newness of life as a new creature, looking at the moral law and love and in gratitude obeying the Lord in all of his word. Do you leave church sorrowfully week by week? Or do you leave church rejoicing in hope? When When the word of God corrects you here, do you go back home wishing very quickly to, dis, to discard the sermon, wishing you'd never heard it, putting on your TV, maybe watching another ball game. There's always a ball game somewhere. Or do you ask the Lord for enlightenment, seek to understand His ways? There's no reason why you should continue in sorrowful mourning that you do not find yourself qualified. That was the intent of God giving the law at Sinai. And if the law is approached in this way, the end of the law, the purpose, the very purpose of giving the law is to end and project Christ. The end of the law Christ. Christ is the end of the law of, the law of righteousness, all who believe. Keep in mind the coming judgment day, God will correct what appears to be um, today. Many who are first, no, they'll be disappointed. Utterly disappointed. They have been affirmed by friends, false ministers, corrupt the Gospels, that they are just. And they're not. And to do their dismay, they will be turned back. And so do not judge by appearances. Leave that to God. God will judge the world in righteousness on his own, in his own time. And know that many who appear to not have much are greatly, greatly esteemed and loved by the Lord. My friends, only Jesus has the righteousness of God that pleases God. God, however, and Christ will not keep that righteousness to himself. He will impute that to you. You may draft from His account. You may claim the title of being righteous because Jesus is ready and God is ready to impute that title to all who believe in the Lord Jesus by faith. And faith is not a work. Faith is the absence, the utter absence of works. Faith is not even the beginning of works. Faith is declaring that we have no works and that Christ has done all the works for us. He is the only righteous one. And by union in him, by your being baptized in the spirit with him, you share all that he is. And since he is righteous, You share the righteousness of your head, which is Christ. And that, my friends, is baptism, not the water thing that we do. The water thing points to it. The truth of it is Christ himself and your union in him. Believe the gospel. It's good news to poor, old, broken sinners, the old man dead on the vine, it has to be created anew. You must be born again. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be born again. And to help remind us of that, my friends, we have here the table of friendship with God. This is a table where Christ's friends may come to him, who know him, and who are grateful that he gives up his body and his blood as a most necessary sacrifice for themselves dying in their place and washing them in this very blood of his and granting them food, his own body, to sustain them in their wilderness journey. And those who love God truly will not grumble and argue about this, this manna, and they will not argue that they are not receiving the riches in this life that they so much deserve but they are grateful that God gives them Jesus. And this table is an emblem of that gift. Will the elders please come first? sacrament is an ordinance of the Lord and it's given as a means of grace. The means of grace are here to build us up in the knowledge of God and to uh, be real uh, food and real drink to us, to fortify us and strengthen us encouragement and encourage us in our way. And, there, and, and as such, it's for those who have faith in Christ, a living faith, those who have been baptized in the church. Not this church, just any church, any gospel believing and proclaiming church, and who have kept to this day their heart's desire is to turn away from the world, turn away from Satan, turn away from the flesh, mortify the flesh by the help of the Spirit. And those who are doing that and turning to God, those are the ones that are friends with God. They show sufficient evidence of the new man. They show sufficient evidence of the friendship of God with them. And Christ welcomes all who are in this camp, who know themselves and can receive this as a child might. It's a gift. And that's why it's always been called in the Western Church a celebration of the Eucharist, giving thanks, a Thanksgiving gift. Let me read the words of uh, of institution. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill. Some have died. But if we are judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. There's a pause before approaching the table. And it's the same pause that the children of Israel should have taken in the wilderness before they profaned the Lord's good treatment of them and the rock at Hora, which that rock says Paul is Christ. That's explained in the 10th chapter. The whole narrative is about the, the, the covenant community of the Lord being careful to discern spiritually the will of God, their relation to that word of God, and how they are utterly dependent on grace. And all who can do that and continue to do that in the church are welcome at the, at the Lord's table. Let's pray now, Lord, we pray that you would receive our thanksgiving as we mean to partake of your heavenly gifts. Would you take this ordinary bread and separate it and consecrate it to your good as the very body of Christ, spiritual food for us, even the Lord Jesus, and the blood may it become for us, great reason to rejoice, because this is the blood that was shed for the remission of sins, the blood that established and sealed the new covenant, the everlasting covenant of grace in the blood of your Son. So we pray you would consecrate the wine as well. We pray all this in Jesus with thanks. Amen. That looks good, no chance there. the night in which the Lord Jesus was betrayed in the upper room. He was with his disciples and uh, he was at table. He took bread and he broke the bread and he gave the bread to his disciples and said, this bread is broken for you. This is my body. I yield it for you. You take and you eat.